Romans 11.32, and we'll read through verse 1 of chapter 12. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. Where would we be apart from your mercies? What hope would we have? What peace would we have? What joy? Where would our satisfaction lie? Man is as the grass, and even the glory of man is like the flower of the grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades. That's the glory of man. But the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word that we have heard preached. This is the word of your mercies. Lord, for your your people, they are new every morning, and they are absolutely breathtaking. Help us to be again in awe of this God who is deserving of all praise, that you would look upon us who are less than nothing in your sight and show us mercy and love us with this everlasting love. And in light of that, help us to commit our lives without reservation to you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now, the apostles are called the foundation or the the pillars of the church, they, are, they were sent to establish the church on the word of God and in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when an apostle who is inspired by the Holy Spirit begins chapter 12 saying, I appeal to you, therefore, we need to take that and mark that in our minds and realize the gravity of it. The first 11 chapters of Romans has been given primarily to establish believers in the doctrine of the gospel of God and all of its benefits. That is, it has has taught us what the gospel is, it has taught us what benediction it is, what blessing it is to be standing in it, to have our identity before God, not be our own, but the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that that implies has been explicitly stated for us in much of chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. 
That is, as we have been grounded in the gospel and in the grace of God, we now see in this portion of Romans that we're coming into that we move from our standing or the indicative to the imperative. We are going to be looking at how we then ought to live in light of that grace of God. And we'll consider just what that grace is again this morning. But this means, as we've been practically going through these things together, that for two and a half years we've been learning theology and doctrine, doctrine that concerns sin, doctrine that concerns judgment, doctrine that concerns salvation, doctrine that concerns the person of Christ, We have been learning the doctrines of the mercies of God towards sinners for two and a half years. And very little have we been then, as we've been looking in Romans, been concerned with what many would say was the practical side of the Christian life. And I'll tell you that, and I'm not boasting in myself at all, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has organized his word to the Romans in this manner, that 11 chapters of it, Concern doctrine, establishing, rooting, firm footing for the Christian life. And yet what I find so often now, it's the exact opposite. When you are being implored by many Christians today, it's all that they do is to tell us what practically we are to do. And you come away from a sermon and it's only moralizing. It's only do this and do that and do this. If you want to live a happy life, you have these 12 steps to do it. There's nothing wrong with the practical application of these truths. But listen to this, this morning, that here we are two and a half years into Romans and now we're getting into the practical portions. That means the grounding is important. That means the doctrine, the theology, the truth that you believe is important. You will not have a practical, successful Christian life apart from knowing what you stand on. What you think and what is underneath you as a Christian will dictate the pattern of your life. Whether you believe it or not, you will not live the way that Paul defines for a Christian to live in these last five, four chapters, if you will, if you do not have standing, a gracious standing. And that's what he's been teaching us. We'll be reminded of today the doctrines that are foundational for the ought or the ethic of the Christian life. You know, today... We have an insidious ideology running through the church called critical theory. And it's coming into churches and it reverses the order. And it's another form of legalism. And what it does is it says, actually do this and you shall live. And you won't live. It tries to heal real hurts by bringing those hurts up again and reorienting the ones who were hurt as the ones who should now be the ones who should be in power, the ones who should now feel themselves important within the body of Christ at 
the cost and at the sake of those who were previously in power and now are in obeisance or in a place of humility underneath them. So all it does is it turns what in a former day was an oppressive, an oppressed group and it changes that component. And turns the oppression and the oppressed groups on their head and by that is supposedly reconciliation. No reconciliation comes that way. But there are real hurts. There were real pains. There were real evils that were done in the Christian church. May I say this? Apart from the gospel of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, those hurts will never be done away with. The pain will always continue, and it will always reciprocate And there will be no peace with God because there will be no gospel. Churches are exploding over these things. They are separating even to this day. Critical race theory in the churches. Substituting for the law and substituting for the gospel. And it is no substitute, beloved. We must be grounded in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. And from there, healing will come to the nations for real sin but this is why we have to get the doctrine right first and then the practice comes notice what Paul said back in Romans chapter 6 13 through 18 and we're going to go a lot into the previous portions of Romans today as sort of a reminder he says here do not present your members to sin now that do not present yourself is in Romans chapter 1, and we'll get to that next week. But here he is reminding us, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that's the proper rendering, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Do you see how the standing how the grounding in grace, how the therefore of Christ's sacrifice on our account and our identity in him turns us from slavery from sin to slavery to righteousness. You see how the one necessarily commits ourselves to the other. That's what Paul is concerned about now from the end of this book. But this morning I want us to be reminded of exactly where we've come from And why we've come there so that we know where we're going and what we depend on while we're going there. It's my one point. Standing and walking in the mercy of God. Verses 1, verse 1, and the only part that we'll look at is this first phrase of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. As I said Here is an apostle, a 
the pillar and ground of the church. And there is an urgency in Paul's exhortation here. Paul is playing the role of a pastor who's preaching to his congregation, or the prophet, who doesn't just come with the authority of God's word, but he wants your response. He doesn't just want you to be hearers of the word, he wants you to be doers of the word. You know, that's the difference between just merely preaching and teaching, primarily, is a preacher is here to incite you under the truth and under the authority of God's word, by the truth and under its authority, to put its truth into action, to hide it in your heart, to commit yourselves to its truth and to its ways. And that's what Paul is doing. He's trying to exhort us. And who is he exhorting? He is exhorting brothers, believers, those who are in the church at Rome and those who are reading this word here in Anahola together and explicitly going through it and even slowly going through it as we've been going through it such that we'll be hearers of the truth of it, that we would do this, brothers and sisters of the apostle. And what does he say there? What is that important transitional word? Therefore. And so what hangs about What hangs on what Paul is going to teach us has come from what he's already taught us. That's why that word, therefore, is therefore. Paul is speaking for the seventh time here to us, Gentiles mostly, as brothers. You see, this is where the gospel breaks down barriers. That great barrier, the greatest barrier that ever was, was the barrier between the law and the nations. The law was that signifier that Israel is God's people. Those who are uncircumcised do not belong to God. That's broken down now in Christ Jesus. And now we're brothers. Now we're really brothers in Christ. Right? And he says this is what he wants us to reckon. I appeal, and here's appeal is urgency, Therefore, tells us why, what he's appealing to. It came beforehand. Brothers, this union, this people of God. And this is the little phrase that I'm going to concern ourselves with. By the mercies of God. If you could summarize everything that chapters 1 through 11 said to sinners, it's this little phrase. By the mercies of God. Of God. That's the summary. That's the summary. I don't think you could use better words to describe what we have been taught than the mercies of God. Chapter 5, verse 2. Paul talks about the standing of a Christian, a justified sinner, those who were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who know that Christ died for them, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again for our justification, according to the scriptures. And he says there, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God the mercies of God that phrase is what defines the Christian 
The mercy of God removes every boast of a Christian except his boast in the Lord, which is the boast of our joy, and it's the boast of our hope, and it's the boast of our comfort. And this speaks both of what is most essential to our standing before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what is most essential for our faith to be put into action, the Lord Jesus Christ. The mercies of God. And I have... I guess five implications. I thought I had three to start with, but I guess five. So here we go. First, the mercies of God is shorthand for every benefit or every gift. Those words are important from what we're going to come because of what we're going to come to. Every benefit or gift that Paul teaches comes to sinners. You see, mercies implies that we don't deserve, all that Paul has said is ours. Now, what uh, has he said is ours? And this is why I want to review very quickly. Let's begin in chapter 1. Verse 1, at the end of chapter 1, verse 1, we read, and then I'm going to read through verse 6. The gospel of God, this is what this book is all about, the gospel of God, this good news which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Who else has been raised from the dead? Jesus Christ our Lord is him, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of, the, of his name, his name among the nations, including you who have been called. And I argued way back then that that calling is the efficacious calling of God, this gracious calling that not only have you heard the announcement of the gospel, but he has by grace imparted that gospel to you. And so you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That is mercy. That is a gift. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. Here is mercy. Here is a gift. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, made clear, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore our great need is righteousness. And that is what we receive by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And are justified by his grace as what? A gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's mercy. Chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and listen to this, and it was counted or imputed to him his faith in God's promises were imputed to him, counted to him as righteousness, the thing we lacked, the thing he lacked. It was counted to him as righteousness. Listen, but verse 23 says, 
But the words it was counted to him, that is Abraham, were not written for his sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's not of our works that, accept, that God has accepted us. It's by the gift of God. This gift of righteousness that he counted to Abraham. Abraham's faith is righteousness because the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gave, which was himself, and that God gave, which was his son. And what's the result? 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified, we have now been justified by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, 19 through 21. It keeps going, doesn't it? For as by one man's disobedience, that's the first Adam, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's the second Adam, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, listen to this, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus doesn't just go back as far as the law to save sinners. He goes all the way back to creation and gives us a new creation and sets us in his own identity so that grace overcomes even our first father's first sin, which put all of creation, all of his kin under the condemnation of death. But that's not where we stand. We stand in grace. This grace reigns. And look at what this means in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Beloved, this body is being brought to nothing. This body is being brought to nothing. And this is the purpose of it. This is Christ's purpose in dying for us so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died, listen, with Christ, that's what faith in Christ does. It unites us with him in his death. Listen what it also does, so that we believe that we will also live with him. So it unites us with him in his life. And here is the gift of God, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You getting the picture? Mercy, 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 grace, gift, bestowed, counted, imputed. These are God's gracious activities for us, and it has an end. It doesn't end there. We still sin, we find in chapter 7. Paul yells out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the same as having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We don't have 
We have been put in a position of mercy and standing where we do not have to reside in a place of fear. Because what can separate us from the love of God? He goes on to say. But you know what is especially encouraging about this? That we don't fall back into that place of fear? That place of judgment. And instead, when we find ourselves in need, we cry out because of the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, that is the spirit of our adoption into the family of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. I was listening to, forgive me, because I love the, the musical, Le Miserable. I don't know how you say that last word there. I love that book, and I love that musical. But when he says in the song, he's talking to, I don't know if you know the book, but Jean Valjean is a criminal, and a priest shows him the love of Christ. And Jean Valjean himself is converted, uh, and he changes. His whole life changes, and he lives for God. He knows his life is God's. And so there's a woman that was removed from his employment as his, at his factory, and he didn't know that it happened, but she had a child already, and the husband of the child abandoned him and her. And in those days, there was, no, there was not much grace to a woman who had a child, not much mercy at all. And so she labored, and she kept it hidden that her child was hers and that she was paying a, a husband and wife to take care of her daughter. Well, the day came when that information that she had a child was known and there was a scuffle in the factory and the foreman of Jean Valjean removed her, Cosette, or not Cosette, I can't remember her name right now, Fontaine, thank you, removed Fontaine from the factory and so she had no work. She had no way to pay for her child's well-being. And in those days, there was nothing she could do. There was nothing she could turn to or she thought. And so she went and began a life as a prostitute. And eventually, a man in power came and tried to persuade her to come and render services. And she said no. And that turned into her arrest. And so she was arrested. And she was also sick. And then Jean Valjean came. He was the mayor of that town. He wasn't known as Jean Valjean over, uh, at that time. He was the mayor. He was the runner of that factory. He was a respected man. And he realized that this woman was a woman from his factory and that she was removed from his employment without him knowing it. And so she's dying now. I'm skipping a lot. She's dying. And, and Jean Valjean comes back and he tells her, what can I do for you? What can I do? And she says, go get my daughter. She'll die. She's got nothing without me to give to her. And he says to her, I promise you, your daughter will lack for nothing. He's going to adopt her. See, we're God's children. This world is passing away, and you don't have to lose heart because of it. He will not lack for anything. 
And we know that because in verse 28 it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, this, this is what our Father did in eternity. This is his mind for you in eternity. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is everything that the mercy of God is establishing us to take part in now. In order that he might be, Christ might be the firstborn of many brothers, many that look like him. And those whom he is predestined, he also called. And those whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's as good as done, as Lindell so often says at prayer meeting. And it is not as though the word of God has failed as you look around. He says in chapter 9, verse 6, you look around at your life, you look around the nation, and you wonder, are the mercies of God holding us? Is the word of God true? Yes, they haven't failed. The word has not failed. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So understand this. If you're here and you're in this standing of grace, it's God that has given you this standing by the mercies of God. Listen. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he says in Romans chapter 10, 19 through 13 through 19, because if you confess with your mouth, 9 through 13 rather, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. From the scripture, so the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You hear that? For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, and the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 11, verses 30 and 32 through 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God. And here's where we see God's mercies. We were in a condition of disobedience, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also might now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The mercies of God are about God's gifts, not his due to us, about his gifts, about what he's given. He's the giver. The Father gave the Son in love. The Son gave himself in love. The Holy Spirit has been given by the Father and the Son to us as our earnest of our inheritance. And this all for our salvation and for his glory and the impetus of the Christian life as we will learn, as Paul will teach us for four chapters, is to emulate God 
in his giving. It's to recognize all of this is by the mercies of God, and pretty soon he's going to say, your life should be in light of that. Your life should be joyfully given back to him with no reservation, all of it. Second observation is this. True Christian conduct depends upon the mercies of God. The Christian life in no wise can succeed apart from God's mercy. Until the day of our glorification and the work of God's mercy is complete in us, and we reach then full maturity in the image of Christ, we depend on the mercies of God every single day. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We depend on his mercies every day. But it's the mercies of God. And because of the mercies of God, we will be able to do what would otherwise be impossible for us to do in our living out the Christian life. Think about what he will say, and we'll look at this more in detail next week. He says, because of the mercies of God, we present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's unnatural, beloved. And that's not to deserve heaven. <laughs> that's not to earn anything. I mean, if you, it's, it's part of our reason to say, well, if you give up much, you know, then you can earn your place with me. Then you can earn all the good that I have. But what has he said? It's because of the mercies of God. You're already established in them. In that mercy, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Now, to do that, in the biblical sense, is impossible without the mercy of God. But it is possible, as we'll see by the mercy of God. Three, the order is important then. Our standing in God's mercies precedes our own practical holiness. If you're here today saying, yeah, I need to learn how to be a Christian, and you don't know if you're a Christian, if you don't know if you have a standing in mercy, may I say to you, no acts of doing any of what Paul will teach us to do will save your soul. No, no great level of conformity to what he asks of us and what he demands of us, according to the Holy Spirit, as we learn will ever justify you before God. This was the fault of the Jews. This is what he says. They went about trying to establish their own righteousness. Romans chapter 10. Not knowing that the righteousness of God is a gift, as we learned in Romans chapter 3 that comes not to those who do the works of the law or do all of these 
duties that Paul will describe for us. So the order is important. It's those who come to God empty-handed and say, I am an unworthy sinner. I know that I don't have your righteousness. I know that I could never earn my way into your heaven because I am a sinner. There's no amount of gaining back the debt that I already owe you. I can never redo what Adam's sin did for me, which is put me into condemnation by nature. And when you learn that Jesus fulfills the law in every point, when you learn that his death was not a death for his own sin, was a death for sinners, was a death that took upon himself our sin to assuage or to remove the wrath of God, propitiatory sacrifice, that on him... He becomes the means of God's mercy to you. And to know that that mercy is actually established because God raised him from the dead. You, if you believe on that message, that gospel message, if you believe on that Lord, you are in the mercies of God. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. And therefore, you can give your life the way that it will be required of you to give. With joy. Just, you know, Jesus went to the cross despising the shame of it. You know, self-sacrificing, self-sacrifice is a despising of yourself, Right? Why did he go, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Because of the joy that was set before him. I'm getting into next week's message. But it's the mercies of God that ground us, that realize in us that it's a joy to give our lives in every facet for the glory of God, in our conduct, in our practice, in every way. And this is the way the scriptures, I'll be brief with this, much briefer than my notes, but this is the way the scriptures defines the order. Jonathan Edwards said that the Exodus was the Old Testament's most perfect expression, shadow, foretelling of the gospel. What does the Exodus say? Oftentimes we think of the Old Covenant as starting on Mount Sinai with the first law, right? Shall have no other gods before us. But what does it say before that? Exodus 21 and 2. And God spoke all these words to Israel, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
Now, I'm not going to go back into the text, but I want you to just follow along what he is saying there to his people. I am the Lord your God. What established that? It wasn't that they agreed upon the covenant yet. They hadn't agreed upon the, the Mosaic covenant yet. What happened in Egypt? What happened in Egypt was Israel was slaves in Egypt now. 400 years. They resided there and they're slaves under hard bondage, under hardship. And God says, I'm going to deliver my people out of, Israel, or out of Egypt by my strong hand. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh nine times rejects them. But God is showing his strength over Pharaoh, over Egypt. They have no way to protect themselves. He shows himself strong. And it's that tenth and final plague or so to speak. And what happens in that tenth one? What happens is the Passover. What happens is that in one stroke, God deals this judgment upon Egypt, which is a picture of the enemy of God's people, sin, and the devil himself. And he blows, he, 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 he makes his blow upon them, and at the same time, redeems his people, passes over their own sin by the blood of a lamb. Because every doorpost that had the blood sprinkled, applied to that building, that angel of judgment would pass over and would not judge Israel for their sin and would judge Egypt for theirs. It was by that might, by that hand, by that redeeming act that God brought his people out of Egypt. Beloved, it's by the mercies of God that we have been brought out of slavery to sin. Our condemnation to it. Satan's power over us. And we have been established in the mercies of God now. And you see that order is essential to live then for the glory of God, to obey God and his precepts. First, we must be established by his mercies, which we have if we're in Christ Jesus. Fourth and finally and briefly, those who stand in the mercies of God are enabled by them. Be of good cheer. I believe Paul is saying by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, he's looking backwards and saying this is the grounds of everything that you will be taught to do. It's your standing and it's the means whereby we can do them. Okay? And I already alluded this to. But how does he enable us to do them? And I be believe it's by the indwelling Holy Spirit that we will increase in holiness, that we will conform to the image of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8. For God has not called us to impurity, called a gracious standing. He hasn't called us for impurity, but in holiness. And verse 8 is, is amazing. Therefore, whosoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. How do we expect to be holy, to be made holy? It's not in ourselves that we are saved. It's not in ourselves that we can depend on to become holy, to grow in practical holiness. But the Holy Spirit has been given to you. 
In chapter 8, the Bible says we walk by the Spirit. We have the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is in you, beloved. So that God, in his appeal to us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, does not appeal in vain. He has given us everything we need to obey him. And so as a recourse or as a sort of a presentation for what we'll consider in the weeks ahead and for what will come afterwards, I'm just going to read both verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect.